I want to thank you guys for leading in worship this morning. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was probably contributed more to the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union than any other individual. And because his views were considered subversive, he was actually arrested and he suffered for many years in a Russian concentration camp. And he had to struggle with back-breaking labor and gradual starvation. And one day the hopelessness just got to him. He had had it. And he noticed this bench. And he just went over and he sat down on the bench and closed his eyes. And he was just waiting for what he knew what would happen. One of the Russian guards would come over and probably bludgeon him to death, maybe even with his own shovel, because he had seen it happen many times. But then he felt this presence, and he slowly lifted his eyes and looked over, and there was this old man. He was all wrinkled, his eyes were squinting, and, and the old man just bent over very uncomfortably, and he had a stick in his hand. And then he started to actually drag out the image of a cross at Solzhenitsyn's feet. And when he stared at that rough outline, he said his entire perspective changed. He knew that he was only one man against that mighty Russian empire, and yet at that moment, he knew that the cross represented what he could do, that simple cross. Through it, anything was possible. So he got up slowly, he picked up his shovel, and he went back to work knowing that he would present the truth in his writings. And then one day his writings did inflame the world and it helped to bring down the Berlin Wall. Such is the power of the cross. So maybe I'm talking to someone today who is really discouraged. Maybe you're overcome by a financial situation. Or maybe you're grief-stricken because of the loss of a loved one. Maybe there's some family member that you're worried about. Or maybe you're anxious over a deep hurt in your life. If you are distressed today, I want you to just come with me for a few minutes and we're going to look at the cross. And we're going to see the actual impact that that cross had upon the disciples of Jesus. The Galatians chapter 6 verse 14. I hope I will never brag about things like that. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is my only reason for bragging. Through the cross of Jesus my world was crucified, and I died to the world. So today, we're going to look at the cross through the eyes of the disciples. And these guys had very heavy hearts. And I want us to think their thoughts. I want us to feel their emotions. But most importantly, I want us to experience their elation when they discovered the true meaning of the cross. First of all, they were disillusioned with Jesus. Now, I'm sure that when the disciples saw Jesus hanging there on the cross, their initial reaction was grief. It was disillusionment. They'd been convinced that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world. And they had good reason to believe that. They had spent three years with this man. They had heard him teach. They had seen the miracles that he performed. They had seen him transfigured right before their eyes. They heard him confirm his deity, and they participated in the triumphal entry. They knew he was the Messiah, and they left their occupations in order to follow him. 
But the disciples had a misconception about what a Messiah was supposed to be. They thought a Messiah was to be a political ruler, that he would come in and that he would overthrow that hated Roman Empire and that he would reestablish the kingdom of David. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Another time, two of them came up to him and said, Now, Jesus, when you get on your throne, would you grant that my brother and I could sit on your left and your right, that we could have positions of authority? They completely overlooked the Old Testament predictions where it said that Jesus would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, that he would suffer, that he would be despised, that he would be rejected by the people. And no matter how Jesus tried to communicate that, they still didn't understand. So when he said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified, they were probably thinking that he was speaking figuratively. I played hockey, as I've mentioned in messages before, but one time we lost a game 19-3. to And it was against a team that went to the Canadian Championships. They played a team that had five future NHL players on it. It was quite amazing. The Sutter brothers, most of you won't have a clue, but there might be some hockey fan out there. But uh, in the paper the next day, they used all kinds of words. Like, we were slaughtered. The, the Sherwood Parkdale Metros killed the Summerside Crystals last night. But we used those words figuratively. And maybe that's what the disciples thought was going on with Jesus. But here's what Jesus was trying to communicate to his spiritually immature disciples. He was trying to actually communicate the fact that he was going to die. And Simon Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to die. But Luke 9.45 clearly says, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't understand what that meant. It was hidden from them so that they didn't grasp it. And then they were afraid to actually ask about it. So when Jesus was arrested late at night, and by 9 o'clock the next morning he was hanging on a cross, they weren't only shocked, they were completely disillusioned. that this isn't what was supposed to be happening. They thought he was the Messiah. Two of the disciples even said, we had hopes that he was going to be the Messiah who would deliver Israel. Now there's a country song that has the lyrics, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Now you've got to love country songs. They're so deep, aren't they? But if you have that shallow view of Jesus, then you can be disillusioned. If you see Jesus as a personal defender who will protect you against disappointment, then you're going to be disillusioned. Look at the cross. There is Jesus. He, he's our leader, and he's dying, and he is being abused by the people around him, and all his friends have deserted him. If you see Jesus as a rich benefactor who will grant you wealth and success, you will be disillusioned. Look at the cross. Jesus died penniless. If you see Jesus as a wise counselor who's going to solve all your problems and he'll automatically bring family harmony, then you're going to be disillusioned. When Jesus was dying on the cross, his mother was present. We don't hear anything about his father. We're thinking maybe his father had died at that time. 
But his brothers and his sister, they weren't there. They they didn't believe in him at that point. They weren't around. And if you see Jesus as the great physician who will heal all your diseases, you'll be disillusioned. Look at the cross. Jesus suffered like no man had ever suffered, and he died at the age of 33. We'll sometimes watch the end of a sporting event, and an athlete will give God glory. They'll give God credit. And I have mixed emotions about that. It's nice to hear God mention, but I don't think God's really involved in that touchdown pass. But they will say, it was the last second of the game, and I threw the ball, and God just led that ball all the way to my receiver. He caught that ball and scored that touchdown, and we won. I'm glad they're giving God thanks and praise, but I'm worried that they'll be disillusioned someday. They're going to make that pass in the last second of the game, and that guy is going to drop it. Or they'll pray that someday their child will be successful, and their child has all kinds of problems. They'll pray that it won't be cancer, and it will be cancer, and they'll be disillusioned. So Jesus is our protector. He's our benefactor. He's our counselor. He's our great physician. But we have to see that in light of his character that he develops in us, and in light of the eternal life that he is granting to us, or we'll be disillusioned. A few weeks ago, I mentioned my cousin Della, who died with cancer back in the year 1990. But in 1970, at the age of 18, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And that was practically incurable back then. But through prayer, through her faith, through the horrible cobalt treatments, she actually beat that cancer. But 15 years later, she developed skin cancer on the location where they had given her those treatments. And then that went into her breast and then into internal organs, and she died five years later. But she was in such good spirits. She said, God healed me that first time. I was able to be married. I was able to have two children, able to enjoy so much more of life. She prayed initially for healing, and she got it, but God didn't give it to her that second time. She knew that the answers to the prayers for healing are fully dependent upon God's will and not hers. It reminded me of Job. Job said, though he slay me, I will still trust him. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were being thrown into that fiery furnace. And they said, our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't deliver us, we still will believe in him. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who said, Now if I live, I am the Lord's, and if I die, I am the Lord's. Whether I live or whether I die, I am still his. So that's the faith that looks to the cross and says, Jesus, I will follow you, even if it leads to a cross. Now the disciples were also distraught by the evil in their world. Jesus had some fierce enemies right from the beginning of his ministry. And there were always these religious leaders who were envious of him. They were lurking on the fringe. They were always asking trick questions, trying to catch him on something, trying to make him look bad. The Sadducees said, Jesus, there was this man, excuse me, this woman who married seven brothers. Now, not all at the same time, but one after the other, and each one of them died. And then she married the next one. So when she gets to your idea of heaven, Jesus, who's 
wife is she going to be? And then the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery to him. And they said, the law says she should be stoned, Jesus. What do you say we should do? And then there were some others who didn't want to give any support to the Roman government that had basically entrapped them. So they said, uh, do we give to Caesar or not? Do we pay our taxes or not? Jesus, why don't you just... Your, excuse me, why don't your disciples fast? Or Jesus, why did you heal on the Sabbath day? They had question after question like that. And they were frustrated in their attempts to trap him with questions. They were envious of his popularity. So finally they decided, we've just got to get rid of this guy. So Mark 14, 43, at once while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 apostles, came up. And with him were many people carrying swords and clubs who had been sent from the leading priests, the teachers of the law, and the Jewish elders. So then Peter, he draws a a short sword out of his tunic and begins to attack. But Jesus stopped him and he said, No, Peter, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And when Jesus willingly allowed himself to be arrested, the disciples felt so helpless that they deserted him and, and they ran. Like, wouldn't you? There were just 11 of them and over 100 of the others. They had one sword, one little sword between them. And all these others were armed with everything, clubs, spears, and other weapons. And when they saw Jesus dying on the cross, they must have felt so helpless against the evil of the world. It can be easy for us to get distraught when we see the evil of the world around us. The opposition to Jesus seems so ominous, and the cross sometimes looks like a pretty weak answer. So what do we do? Some Christians, like Peter, try to strike out with violence, and you read all the time about Christians trying to respond in that way, or they try to fight with the world's weapons. But in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul said, We do live in the world, but we do not fight in the same way the world fights. We fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God that can destroy the enemy's strong places. So the weapons we fight with aren't the weapons of the world. And I think the Lord would say to us individually, and he would say to us as a church, don't lose confidence in that cross. Lift high that cross and experience the power of that cross. And that power will enable us to overcome. The Bible says the earth and its pleasures are going to vanish away, but whoever does the will of God will last forever. Now the Roman Empire looked so powerful to these Christians. They were being persecuted, but the Roman Empire collapsed and the cross still stands. To Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the communism looked so powerful in the Soviet Union. He was just one person but he stood by the cross and the Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union fell apart, but the cross of Jesus Christ still has its power. That's why Paul said, Jews demand miraculous signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Steven Spielberg's movie Amistad, 
African slaves instigate a mutiny on a ship, bringing them to the United States. And after they overtake the ship, then they are overtaken by a U.S. naval vessel. And they're taken to the United States, and they were on trial for murder. And they don't speak English. They don't know what's going on. But there was a group of Christian abolitionists who were working desperately to free them. And the slaves were led to the courthouse where the ruling would take place. And over the top of the courthouse, they said, there are three crosses. And what they were actually seeing was masts of ship in the harbor. But that night before, there were Bibles in the cells that they were in in that prison. And there were pictures in there, and they saw pictures of Jesus being crucified. So they thought that was how the Americans executed people. But what they didn't know was that prior to the trial, that judge had gone to church, and he knelt down before the cross asking for God's wisdom. And even though the President of the United States wanted those men to be killed, the judge set them free. That's why when Paul came to the evil city of Corinth, he said, I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross will prevail. Don't lose confidence in it. God's word will never fail. And there's a third reason why these disciples were distressed. They were actually disappointed in themselves. So we pick up in Mark 14 again, verse 27. On the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter said to them, Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And Peter, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the roaster, rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. But verse 50 says, then all of his disciples deserted him and ran away. So when the disciples looked at that cross the next morning, they must have felt guilty because they had been so cowardly that they hadn't done more to prevent it from happening. So the cross revealed the guilt of their sin. I'm a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and my only sibling, a younger brother, cheers for the Montreal Canadiens just to be annoying to me, I'm sure. And for years, the Montreal Canadiens were strong, Toronto Maple Leafs really weak. Five years ago, that changed. And one Saturday night, Toronto and Montreal were playing on national TV, and Toronto walked all over Montreal. So I had to call my brother, and I woke him up. And he goes, and I said, you're in bed? Well, we're just about to get up for the morning. So he hadn't even watched the game. So, but I can proceed to tell him how horrible his team was. And I said, you know, I could likely still play defense for them. And he was feeling a little bad. And I hung up and, and I, I didn't feel bad because I, I got to brag a little bit. But you know something, we have a tendency to gloss over our own failures and inadequacies, even when they make someone else feel worse. We like to pretend that our sin doesn't matter that much. 
but we don't get upset about lying. That's just spinning a yarn, as my grandmother would say. Or we don't get upset about adultery because that's just sex. We don't get upset about the parties that our kids go to at university. That's just part of growing up, we will say. But the Bible teaches that all sin has dire consequences. Four of the ten of us that went to Krakow, Poland, for our mission trip back in October 2019, went on the tour of the Auschwitz and Birkenau. They weren't concentration camps, they were extermination camps. And we couldn't look at the pictures and scenes of the Jewish people with their emaciated bodies and hollow eyes, realizing that these people were being starved to death and most of them were going to actually be gassed to death. We can't look at that without saying that sin does some horrible things. You can't look at the cross without realizing that our sin does horrible things. It's what we call the little sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. The envy of the religious leaders, the greed of Judas, basically the indifference of Pilate, the prejudice of the soldiers, and the cowardice of the disciples. Those are the things that nailed Jesus to the cross. Henry Nouwen tells about a doctor in Paraguay who spoke out against the oppressive government abuses and the local police took revenge against him by arresting his teenage son and torturing his son to death. And it was a brutal and senseless murder. And the father responded with the most powerful protest imaginable. And I don't know how he could do this, but at the funeral... It wasn't his son's body after being at the, at the funeral home and they do everything they can to make that body look good. But his son's body was the way it was when he retrieved it from that prison. They didn't clean it up. They didn't embalm it. So it was scarred. It was twisted. There were open sores from the beatings, burns from the cigarette butts. And all the villagers that passed by to pay their respects didn't even see that body in a casket, but he had brought the little mattress, the blood-soaked mattress that his son died on. It was a hard picture, but the reality of their evil was not covered up. God allowed Jesus to be tortured and crucified so that the hideousness of sin could not be concealed. And the Bible says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. What a distressing picture. But there are two factors which change the cross from an instrument of distress to one of hope and victory. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The disciples, they walked down that hill called Golgotha. They, they were distressed. They were depressed. They were full of despair. But when they were meeting behind locked doors and Jesus appeared in their midst, all of a sudden, that despair, and that it was gone because they realized that Jesus was stronger than death. He was the Messiah. And they just had a misconception of what the Messiah would do. He conquered the grave, and he had conquered sin. Romans 1.4, And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. So the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is alive. He has conquered sin and death. And then the final factor that changed the cross from an instrument of despair to one of joy for the disciples 
was their understanding of the purpose of the cross. The cross wasn't just an accident, and it wasn't a momentary victory for the followers of Jesus. The cross was designed by God from the creation of the world to be a payment for the sins of all humanity. Hebrews 9:22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be made clean with blood. Without the spilling of blood, no one can be forgiven. Now, I don't fully understand that, and that's one of my questions when I get to heaven. But God said in the beginning, if you sin, you will die. And then God said, the life is in the blood. So God's justice wasn't going to be satisfied without a perfect blood sacrifice for the sins of humanity. That's why in the Old Testament, he conditioned the people because they would take an animal and they would offer the blood of that animal to just kind of cover over their sins for a short time. The Bible says that couldn't take away sin. But God was preparing people to understand that sin brings death. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus steps into the scene at the Jordan River, John the Baptist, he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the Lamb that was led to the slaughter. His blood was shed from the crown of thorns that was placed on his head to the nails that were driven through his wrist hand to the nails that were driven through his feet and the spear that was placed in his side. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter. First Peter 1. You know that in the past you were living in a worthless way, a way passed down from the people who lived before you, but you were saved from that useless life. You were bought, not with something that ruins like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, who was like a pure and perfect lamb. Christ was chosen before the world was made, but he was shown to the world in these last times for your sake. So that cross is far from an emblem of despair, It is a symbol of hope. It tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ washed away the sin of the world. So that means it washes away my sin. But it also means that that's not a blanket forgiveness. No matter what we believe, no matter what we do, we have to respond to Jesus. So we aren't going to make it to heaven if we just do more good things than bad things. We aren't going to make it there through that system. God loved you first, now he wants you to love him back. He wants you to take the opportunity to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I repent of the sin in my life, and I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Let us know if you have that decision to make, and we will guide you through confessing your faith publicly and being baptized.